I mean, clearly my charisma would be off the charts. My strength would be off the charts. My HP would be off the chart. No, I'm just kidding. Welcome to the Tuesday Night Podcast. I'm Alan Gerding, and this is the podcast all about the stories we make while playing the games we love on, around, and sometimes even under the gaming table. I'm talking about card games, board games, and my guest today knows a lot about manufacturing those things, printing them, if you will. I have JT Smith of our sponsor, TheGameCrafter.com. How you doing, JT? I'm doing great. Now, I already gave a little bit of a plug of who you are and how we established this relationship, but People are probably sick of my voice. Who the hell are you? Throw humility out the window. Let me know your involvement in the industry. Within the industry, the thing that I'm primarily known for is the Game Crafter. We're manufacturing board games on a short run basis. I do lots of stuff. I've been publishing games since I was 20 years old. Uh, I'm now 44. Oh, whoa. I mean, not that that's old, but 22 years is a healthy amount. I wasn't like, oh man, you're old. No, we're peers. Yeah, and I also run a company called Tabletop Events, which runs about half of the conventions in North America. Whoa, I didn't know this. You didn't know that? No. I did not know that. I'm totally naive and ignorant because realistically, this is the history of our relationship thus far, to my knowledge, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. On uh, our podcast, we had a knave, a listener, if you will, ask us, hey, would you be up for any sponsors? So Sean and I had this conversation where we said, If we were to have any sponsors, it would be sponsors that we actually use. So we'd be very select on who we would allow be our sponsors. And the number one thing that we said was the Game Crafter. Because we've been using the Game Crafter for years. And once we had that episode, we got a tweet from you saying, The Game Crafter will totally sponsor you. So here we are, now enraptured in this beautiful relationship with the Tuesday Night Podcast and the Game Crafter. So pretty much that's all I know is the tweets, the few emails we've had between one another establishing our relationship, and all of the time I've used on the Game Crafter. And that's it! But as far as you and me, we've probably seen each other and talked to each other at conventions. But my memory shit, so... (laughs) Mine too. I mean, when you're at a convention, you meet so many hundreds or thousands of people, it's impossible, honestly. Unless you hang out with them for an extended period of time, multiple times, you're probably not going to remember everybody. Right. And Thank you for validating my experience and not making me feel bad and (laughs) rubbing the wound. But anyway, let's talk about the story of how you got involved in the gaming industry. 22 years. How did it start? Let's go back. Like, what, what is this segue into here? Okay. I guess it started back in college. Uh, I was designing a role-playing game called Dead Earth. Just me and a, a group of friends through college, we played every week. Some weeks we'd play every night during the week. When I got out of college, I decided, hey, we put all this content together. Maybe we should try publishing it. Because at first it was just for funsies. You were just doing this because it was a game you wanted to play. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we had been playing lots of other role-playing games anyway, like uh, the old Star Wars version before they switched to the D20. We were playing Rifts and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and all kinds of things. Riffs. Yeah. <laughs> so Dead Earth, 
did it borrow from these systems? Was it a D100 system? Was it a D20? Would we recognize it or was it something totally unique that no one had ever heard of beforehand? It was totally unique, but I mean, you know, it was new. I wouldn't say, obviously, you know, you always borrow something from your experiences of the past. I have never played a system like Dead Earth since then or before then. Going back to the story, you decided, let's publish this because we've put a lot of work into it. We may as well share it with the world. Right. And back then, you know, because I'm old, the web was really just getting going. It was not what it is today where it's ubiquitous everywhere. Right. We're talking AOL. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And so I was like, well, we should build an online community around this. We can do this. And honestly, I did. Like, we built a website with forums and all kinds of stuff. And we had a couple thousand people participating in that community way back then, which was a huge number back then. Yeah, yeah. A couple thousand back then is the equivalent of, I want to say, a million now. I don't know about that, but yeah, it's a lot. I was flabbergasted. So when we decided to actually publish a physical thing, a lot of people bought in right away. We sold about a thousand copies of the game within the first four months or something like that as an indie publisher. What year are we talking? Uh, That was 1999, I think, or 98. So what I was told getting into the industry, and this is 2015, 2012, actually, is that if you sell a thousand copies of a game, That's a solid year for a tabletop game. Now, I know we're in the golden era of games and those numbers have increased. So if we're talking back then, that translates into that whole inflation of being a bigger deal. Yeah, it was pretty good. I was impressed that we were able to sell that many. I honestly didn't think we would sell that many. Can we still get a hold of Dead Earth nowadays? Uh, There are copies floating around. People come up to me at conventions and say, hey, I I played Dead Earth last weekend. It's amazing. They're still out there, but it's not for sale anywhere. I I don't even have, I think I have four copies of it left. What is the quick pitch for Dead Earth? It's a role playing game set 20 years in the future where society has failed. Lots of disasters befell humanity. Society has ended and now the remnants are kind of Mad Max style living with mutants and special powers and all kinds of crazy stuff. Beautiful. It was a bad 20 years for humanity. That's right. So yeah, it it was good. And yes, you're absolutely right that uh, selling a thousand for most games, even in the golden era in a single year is a really good number to put up. Now, obviously there are games out there that sell tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of copies in a single Correct. year. Yeah. But those are <laughs> those are so rare, people just don't realize. Pandemic and Catan and things like that, those are so freaking rare. There are not yeah. that many games that do those kinds of numbers. Wow, so you sold a thousand copies all the way back in the late 90s. What are you doing as a day job at this point? Or was this your, I'm done with college, I think I'm going to try to make this a job? Oh, no. I I knew there was no job there. Um, I was (laughs) (laughs) smarter than me. (laughs) I had actually started my, I don't know, was that the third company at that point? We were uh, building websites professionally for other companies. That's one thing I, I, most people don't know about me either if they haven't interacted. But over 20 years, I created 21 companies. Wow. That's quite the collection. I think once you get over 10, you're a collector. <laughs> yeah, it, it's more of a practice thing. <laughs> they, they weren't all successful. Really quick then, let me just ask, are you willing to share the worst one of those 21 companies? 
Or is that like asking if you have any regrets in your love life? And then people's response is usually, well, I can't really say I regret it because every single instance was a learning moment and I've grown since then. That, that really is the truth that they are. But, you know, there were some that were fairly epic failures. <laughs> like uh, there was a voting website that I built. You could go and vote on things. And the software for it actually exists on the Game Crafter today. It's the site ideas system. The idea back then was that we were going to put out this site and people would pay us money so that they could have their own voting systems on their own websites. And we never had a single customer. <laughs> so wow. that's a pretty, pretty epic failure. So let's go on with the story then. Dead Earth, you've got some roots in the gaming industry. Did you totally leave it at some point and come back? Oh, yeah. Or was it always one project after another that slowly crescendoed into the Game Crafter? I, I left it for a long time. I wouldn't say that I've ever been in the industry until recently. You know, it was me self-publishing a thing. So I don't know if that counts as being in the industry. Yeah, sure it does. I mean, at the very least, your toe's in it, but you're in it. That's true. That's true. But yeah, I left for a long time, went off to do my actual career that made me real money <laughs> like because gaming back then didn't. Right. I was doing web development and software development, that sort of stuff for over 10 years before I came back to the game industry. 10 year hiatus. So what brought you back in 10 years later? Uh, well, actually it was, I was, I got the bug to work on some games. I designed another little card game. It was terrible. It was a terrible game. Should have never, <laughs> should have never done anything. Is it so bad you don't want to say its name? I'll say it. It's called Campaign Secrets. It was a political kind of satire card game. What I've noticed, this is just my quick two cents observation. Mm -hmm. Campaign games seem to be doing worse and worse. Anything that has a political aspect nowadays, I think a lot of people are so exhausted with it that it's no longer a source of fun. Like if you say like, hey, let's have an open debate, because I know there are very many cards against humanity type political games that were coming around almost every presidential election season on Kickstarter, if you take a look, but they've just seemed to do worse and worse and worse. But that may be totally wrong. That's just my own flawed observation. Yeah, I think you might be right on that. Uh, I think it, politics is so invasive at this point that I think everybody is there. But this was during George W. Bush's first presidency. So this is quite a while ago. Yeah, it hadn't quite soured yet. Just as he was actually being elected is when this came out. I self-published that one as well. I went to a company in India to get the cards made and had them shipped in. And I think I sold 11 copies or something like that. It was terrible. Oof. I got 2,000 of them made. So I was sitting there with a garage full of games. The classic nightmare it of is an the... indie publisher. Absolutely. What was your selling strategy at that point? Were you just taking it to local conventions and getting a booth? Or were you just doing online sales? What was your strategy? I didn't really have one, to be honest with you. I mean, I did go to some <laughs> local conventions. I did do some online sales, but yeah, I didn't. I, it was just like, oh, I'll make this thing and, you know, people will buy it. And it was a stupid game, too. So I, I made the classic stupid mistakes that a lot of game designers make. And it's just because you don't know any better, right? Right. You love the smell of your own stank and you think, ah, this is wonderful. And it isn't until a while later you see it from that third person point of view and think, oh, this isn't as wonderful as I thought it was. Exactly.
couple mistakes just because I hope nobody else repeats them. One of the mistakes I made was I didn't put the rules in the game. I had a little rules card that briefly summarized them and then a link to a PDF on a website where you could actually get the rules. Don't do that. People need the rules <laughs> in the damn game. I also made the mistake of building it for too many audiences. So I was originally building it for a gamer audience, and then I thought, oh, I could widen my market by making this a little simpler and make it a casual game. The problem was that I didn't make it quite casual enough, and so now it's straddling two different audiences, and that's a terrible idea too. JT, this is gold. Even if you look at Project Runway, the thing with Heidi Klum and she's judging fashion designers, she says you always have to know your audience. Who's gonna wear this? And it's the same thing in all industries and even our gaming industry, you have to imagine someone specifically that is gonna love this game. And if you have a hard time thinking or if it's too generalized, let's get a crash and burn. So keep going with this gold. Go on, another lesson. It was an epic failure. I did uh, actually learn from that epic failure. And so I was like, I'm not going to repeat this again because I had started another game. And so I went looking for something that looked like the Game Crafter. And all I found were the husks of companies who had tried to do this and went out of business. They had set up some kind of short run print on demand kind of thing, lasted for a year. Their website might still be online or somebody was referring to a website that no longer exists, but none of them are actually producing any cards or boards or anything like that anymore. So the need is obviously there, but the people that had stepped up to the plate and gave it a try had failed. Now, this is curious because if it were me and I saw other people failing, to my chagrin, I would probably say, well, it looks like this is something that doesn't work and I probably wouldn't even try it because other people had failed. But I think what you're about to tell me is something in you said, I know what they're doing wrong and I can do it better. Is that where we're headed? That's it. Part of it's just bravado, right? Like having, <laughs> like believing that you can do it, even if everybody else has failed. You don't make 21 companies without a little bit of bravado. Yeah. And that is exactly it right there. Those 21 companies. And at this point, it wasn't 21. It was like I don't know, 15 or or 13, something like that. All of those companies, plus working for all these other companies that I'd worked for, you know, in my career, 10 years away from the industry, I realized what they were doing wrong because I had a brain that had been developed for developing systems. So I could see what is the system in this business that has failed these people? Why have they not worked? Care to share? What, what was it that was the big flaw, at least one of them that you saw? Wow, this is probably one of the big reasons why they are crashing and burning. The big one, there are many, but the big one was simply zero automation. They tried to basically do the traditional print model, but they didn't recognize that you're not making as much money as the traditional print model. So the traditional print model is this. A customer comes in, you have a back and forth with them about estimating how much is this gonna cost and then getting the files from them. And that takes weeks. There's hundreds of hours that go into collecting all of that information. If you're spending even more than an hour on that per customer, you don't have any money left when you actually produce the thing because you're only producing one or 10 or whatever your minimum is. And time's money because of the time you're spending with one person is time you're not spending with another. Exactly. Okay, if we can completely automate the ingestion phase, so all of that stuff that I just described, so that there's zero time 
then all the time that we're putting into actually making the game will be the only cost part of the equation. And so uh, we decided, let's build a website that gives all the pricing, handles them uploading stuff. It will automatically format the files for the printer. That was the magic sauce. My goodness, what was the official birthday of the Game Crafter in your mind? When was it, boom, thegamecrafter.com exists? Well, thegamecrafter.com existed for a decade before that with my little card games and stuff like that. So that was just a web domain that you owned? Yeah, it was a domain that I owned, but it wasn't this. It was just for me to put up my own little files and stuff. The actual site, the idea behind let's make games for people, let's see. I had the idea in late 2008. In 2009, it was July 16th, is when we actually had the software done and launched it to the public. Was it an epic failure? Was it pretty streamlined even I mean, then? the site was terrible, <laughs> but, but <laughs> it was better than anything else that was on the market and it worked. Like it didn't crash or anything. It was just, you know, there was very few features and it was kind of ugly. And right out of the gate on launch day, we had people uploading and ordering games. That was my next question. Was it something where you hit launch and you're sitting there? Come on, somebody, somebody use this thing. Come on. Oh, yes, we got one. Now we have two. There's a third. Was it something akin to that? It was akin to that. I was shocked. And my business partners were even more shocked because I had talked them into building this thing and they actually thought I was crazy, but went along with it anyway. So we've been talking about the software aspect of it as far as having that user interface online. What about the hardware aspect? Because you need to have some serious printers. And if you're coming out with cards, you have to be able to cut them into cards. And then there's even shipping. How did that come about? My initial idea was to do what Lulu.com does, which uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It's a place where you can go get books made. I do know it. I had been using that to publish my own books for the business stuff. Like I would write manuals for things and I would publish them up there. So what they do is they built the website and then they hired somebody else to actually do the fulfillment. And so I was like, let's do that because then we don't have to have all the hardware and we don't know anything about printing anyway. And so I went to a local copy shop here in Madison and I'm like, hey, uh, would you do this. This is the business idea. Would you make these games for me? And the owner of the shop is like, yeah, sure. I'll do that. So yeah, I didn't have to buy any of the hardware initially. The problem was, (laughs) this is great. I love this story so much. The problem was that he was not prepared for the amount of orders that we had coming in. (laughs) I mean, not that we were either really. Right. And also our mechanism for cutting them back then. Oh my God. So what we were doing was I don't know if anybody knows what a guillotine cutter is. Take a machete and bolt it to a table, and now you've got a guillotine paper cutter. Yeah, it's basically that, although it was an industrial one, so it had hydraulics and stuff, so it could actually cut three inches of paper with it at once. Wow. But basically, that was it. We were going to trim it off with a guillotine cutter. And this is manually done? It's not done by computer, so there was some person risking their fingers? Oh, yeah. Oh, man, that's so much cutting. Because <laughs> I already started this whole story with we went to the Game Crafter because we were wasting so much damn time on freaking cutting our cards ourselves. We're like, screw it. Just hire someone to do this. This is not worth our life. Yep, that's basically it. So 
we had the nice printer. He had this terrible thing. I bought him this machine. It was a corner rounding machine. So once you've trimmed down the cards with the guillotine cutter, you uh, you know put it into this machine and it will cut off all of the corners of one corner of the deck. And then you'd rotate it and cut off all the other corners. It was a terrible process. Side note though. Yeah. Corner rounding somehow magically makes little note cards actually become playing cards and game cards. That little technique goes so long to the point where I have my own corner rounders, obviously. Mm-hmm. And if I get a game that has a component where the corners aren't rounded, snip, snip, snip. And it's <laughs> ridiculous how much of a difference it makes. It sounds so stupid, but there's something sweet about rounded corners that just upgrades the perceptive quality of a game. You're absolutely right. You're, I, I don't know what the magic is there either, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> so that was it. We launched with that. And Within a week, he was already buried. And within a month, we knew we were in huge trouble. And this is all in Madison, Wisconsin? That's all in Madison, Wisconsin. This poor guy, had you come in and say, hey, by the way, um, I'm starting a website and it will need some printing. You think you can handle it? He's like, yeah, I, I love customers. And then this, <laughs> this, this poor person owning this private family-run company, I don't know if that's actually the case, like, hey, I, I'm not getting any sleep here and I'm going to be late on some of these orders. At what point did this person say, I can't handle these orders anymore? Or is it just that they were getting later and later and later that you knew you had a shift? He never, he never said that. In fact, he always thought he was going to catch up. <laughs> but he was just getting later and later and oh, more yeah. and more buried. <laughs> and, and he was upset when we left. So it was, I'm still friends with him now, but right. there was a period of time where he was very upset that we left because he was like, oh, I'll upgrade stuff and we'll get it going. And But he would have never taken the trajectory that we needed to go with the Game Crafter. Right. Yeah. Because I'm thinking factory, so you can always keep up. Yeah. Because again, I'm plot spoiling here, but one of the things I love about your company, thegamecrafter.com I'm shocked sometimes, shocked at how quickly I can get my games. Continue the story. So how did you grow <laughs> after crushing this guy's soul? Who's still your friend? How'd you move on? Uh, it, it was the craziest. It was stupid. We shouldn't have done it, but somehow it worked. We went, found a company that rents printers or leases printers, industrial ones, and we rented one. And we rented a little office space. And I'm not kidding when I say it was 100 square feet. Like, it's smaller than your bedroom. That's a 10 by 10 booth at any con. So if you're at Origins Gen Con, you go to a 10 by 10 booth, those small booths. That is where, did the machine even fit in there? Yeah, because it was it was a small, it was basically like an office copier kind of thing. Is uh, yes. it, it was a little better than that, but it was basically an office copier. And then the other thing that was in the room was we bought this little die cutting machine so that we could, you know, you it comes out the printer and then you turn around basically because there's no room, turn around and you put it in this die cutter one sheet at a time and it will cut out cards. So goodbye guillotine cutter. Hello, die cutter, upgrading. Exactly. <laughs> Level up. But it was still, I mean, it was a very slow process, but everything was higher quality because it was going through the die cutter and we had somebody working, making the games all the time. So you hired someone to basically feed in the die cutter one paper at a time. 
So this person is taking it from printer to there. I haven't even asked you, and I need to, what about boxes? Was boxes an option yet at this point? Oh, no. The box option was just a white box that we shipped the stuff in. Like that. Oh, was my goodness. It. I remember this. You were around that long ago, huh? Yeah. I remember because I've been, yeah, I've been designing for a long time just for fun. And I would think my original impetus was, oh, Christmas gifts. I would love to have like a custom card game as a Christmas gift and looking around then. But yeah, I remember these things. Keep on going. I love this. So you didn't really have a box option. It was basically just the small mailer box. But and if I remember correctly, the boxes, you could print out a label that you just put a label on top of the box. And that was the cover of your game box. Am I crazy? No, you're right. It was a little, I think it was like two inches by three inches, black and white thermal printed label. That was your box label. (laughs) Right. So it was more about the cards than obviously the entire presentations of having the shrink wrapped box. So right now your cards and excuse my language, shitty little box with a crappy little label at this point too. It was absolutely a shitty little box with a crappy little label. It was, (laughs) it was bad. But at the time there was no competition. And there was clearly a need. People wanted cards. And so that was it. We made one size of card (laughs) and and we had one box and we had a couple of mats, which were basically just sheets of cardstock that we printed. And that was it. That was the entire offering of the Game Crafter. (laughs) I'm assuming during this entire process, you are thinking constantly, we have to grow and we have to evolve and we have to just increase our offerings and our quality. Or is there a point where you thought, oh, we could just keep on doing this. This is great. I'm assuming no, because you're the bravado man, JT Smith. So no, that was, uh, you're, you're actually wrong. <laughs> I'm wrong. You're wrong. I, I, no, I would love to think that I was the bravado man and said we should keep growing and iterating and everything. But no, I didn't. That isn't what I thought at all. You know, we got cards going good. We're done. And so we just we just let it do that for a couple of years. And in the interim, I worked on a video game. That was another company that I started. Can you name drop the video game? Sure. It's called Lacuna Expanse. It's no longer in operation. We uh, we ran it for, I don't know, eight years and it did its thing. And, you know, video games kind of come and go. Yep. But it was a massively multiplayer online game, whatever. And it took me a year to develop the software for it. And then, you know, another year or so I was spent promoting it and continuing to develop it before I hired even more programmers on it so that they could do their thing. So I basically left the Game Crafter alone for a couple of years while I was doing that. It was just this little side thing that made a bit of money while you went on to more of the companies. Exactly. But at a certain point, I realized, hey, there's a lot of customers here and they clearly want more. We should be doing more. So that's when I wrote this thing. It's still out on the Internet uh, called A Game Crafter's Manifesto. And it was basically, here's all the stuff that's wrong with the Game Crafter that we could improve dramatically by just putting some money and time into this. I wrote that. We did it. And then I released the Game Crafter Manifesto publicly, like that wasn't the original intention, but uh, because basically it was the plan. It was just like, here, let's just release the plan because everybody needs to know what the hell we're doing. It reminds me of Jerry Maguire and what got Jerry Maguire originally fired is this is the problems with the current company and this is where we need to go. Yep. If anybody else wants to come with me, this moment will be the moment of something real and fun and inspiring in this God-forsaken business, and we will do it together. Who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? 
this is embarrassing. The difference was you are that company. Yeah. And you decided <laughs> we need to do this and you already were putting in action. This is brilliant. And I love the transparency of sharing it. Yeah. It really helps really connect with your customer base is knowing exactly where you're coming from and that you see from their point of view. Keep on going. Yeah. So at that point, we released like tuck boxes, a bunch of different sizes of cards. Uh, we had a bunch of a big parts library, all kinds of crazy things that we did. And like I said, you can go check out if anybody cares about the details. Uh, check that How out. How did you do this, though? Because you're still at a 10 by 10 freaking office building. And I imagine boxes require tooling or at least outsourcing to another company for your boxing. How did this evolve like that? So yeah, we had, by this point, we had upgraded to, we had 500 square feet or maybe 600 square okay. feet. <laughs> so five times the size at least. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was bigger because we needed it. And, and we had, the whole time we were growing the space so that we could have, we could store more materials and, and have more workers, that sort of hold thing. Hold more so, paper, hold more workers, hold more printers and... Well, still one printer, still one die cutter. Really? No way. Still just the one printer and the one cutter. Yep. But then we had somebody shipping separately, you know, like, so that, like, so that's why we were, you know, we were growing and we needed space to hold more print paper and that sort of stuff. But anyway, so by this point, we were at five, six hundred, maybe a thousand square feet. I don't remember. It was, it was still very, very small. We added in some more equipment for cutting and we added in more people. I think maybe there were three or four people working at the Game Crafter at that point. So yeah, it that was it. And from there, one of the things that was in the manifesto is that we will continually improve going forward. And oh, I, I, the other thing was that I completely rewrote the website so that it was not so shitty. <laughs> right. Just polished it up, made it more inviting and beautiful. Got it. Yeah. Or imported all the games from the old site into the new site. And then from there on, it is the game crafter that everybody knows today just evolved over uh, an additional seven years. Could you still sell your games on the Game Crafter with the original launch of the Game Crafter? Or was yeah. it just a printing service? No, it was, you could sell them on, on the Game Crafter from day from one. From day one. Yep. That's brilliant because that is such a huge appeal for indie designers like I was originally. It's just, man, I just, if someone wants this, I could tell them about it instead of myself having to make one and cut it and hand it to them. Right. It was so much easier just saying, go to the Game Crafter, just print it out yourself. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was the entire business model at the beginning. We were thinking, this isn't going to be so much for people to get prototypes. It was going to be, you know, you're going to put your idea out there and people are going to, you're going to send people there to buy it. But in the early days, it was more about prototyping than it was online sales. Although there were still online sales, it was just such a small fraction. These days, the, the numbers have changed. So there's a lot of online sales, but that wasn't the case in the early days. You have to excuse my childlike enthusiasm and curiosity because the boxes, eventually, I have to know if you're outsourcing or is there some cool machine that's making these tuck boxes or is this just something that's printed that you have workers folding and stuffing? How did the original tuck boxes come about? Because I understand the original boxes, there was just probably a pile of assemble these boxes and you throw it in, slap on the label, send it out. But now... You have so many box options. Yeah. Back then it was just that crappy little die cutter. You know, we'd run through and people would fold them and, and that was it. Uh, now we have moved on uh, these days and <laughs> right. we have lots of robots that do things. The robots do a lot of the work these days, although boxes are one of the things that is still very manual process. It's only maybe 30% automated. 
So there is still a lot of human time in boxes, which is why boxes are one of the most expensive things on the site. And this is still all in-house in Madison. So this is legit. You are manufacturing in America. In America. Right. That's incredible. Your box quality throughout the years is still improving. And anytime you have a news update, a lot of times it has to do with boxes. And I have to admit, the designer in me goes, <laughs> I'm so excited because the original boxes that I have, I remember they look great, but they would never survive my airplane trips. And now we have like the, what do you call them? The medium size pro boxes. And those things are just as good and sometimes even better than the full quality boxes you get from any game you'd buy at any game store. Yeah. Starting last year, we actually were doing a new line of boxes that we call the stout boxes. So we have the small, medium, and large. That's it. The stout boxes. And the older ones, I think, were called the pro boxes. Yes. Yep. The previous generation. Yeah. And yeah, these the, the stout boxes, I'm really proud of them, honestly. You could kill so, someone with them if you wanted to. You could. I'm, <laughs> I'm a big dude. I am six foot two. I weigh uh, 300 pounds. I am a big dude. And- I can stand on those boxes and they don't crush. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what. I love them because now when I go out and take my prototypes anywhere, they come back in one piece. (laughs) Yeah, they're really good. I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased. And yes, like you said, they are actually as good or better than any box you'll find on any shelf in any game store or anywhere in the world. It's just constantly evolving at the Game Crafter. What are some of these features that you never thought originally would be there that are now there? Well, honestly, 2020 hindsight, all that, I actually thought boxes were irrelevant. You know, like it's, we're shipping. You don't need a box. Uh, You know, you have the external shipping box, but you don't need a physical box. If you're doing a prototype, you don't need a physical box, whatever. I thought that was going to be not necessary, basically. And I was so wrong. Game designers, customers, everybody loves boxes. So that was the thing. Foldable game boards. I never thought we would do that. Uh, We do foil packs now. I never thought we would do that. Oh, I'm so excited to come up with something just to use those things. It's so cool because not only do you have the foil packs, but don't you also have the foil display cases? Yeah. So if I wanted to, I could have my own little game store and have my own collectible. Hmm, Ellen's card games. You can come in and get the booster pack. Meh. It's incredible. It's ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) I haven't I haven't gotten one yet. I can't wait to come up with something to use it with. I I yeah. I I would have never thought anybody wanted any of these things, but it turns out if you have ever seen it in any game ever, somebody wants it out there and more. People are always asking us for stuff that you've never seen in any game. So yeah, it, it, the sky's the limit. And basically, as long as people keep asking us for stuff, we're going to keep providing it. Yeah. And we're also talking about not just printed components, but actual physical chits, pieces, plastic, miniatures, avatars, meeples, all that jazz, all available there. So now I imagine there's no way this could fit in a 10 by 10. I have to imagine an entire warehouse full of crates of all these just components that aren't even printables. Yeah, it's it's huge. We're, we currently, well, it's huge and tiny at the same time. If you're in the manufacturing industry, you know how tiny this is when I when I say it's we're currently in 10,000 square feet. From a manufacturing point of view, 10,000 square feet is tiny and we are bursting at the seams. I need to move to a new facility. But we have a lease on our current facility for the next three years. So I'm just trying to make it work. Like there are restaurants that are bigger than 10,000 square feet. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it, we need more space. Just like uh, every business that grows, you you kind of grow out of something eventually. Now, what about these other aspects that really help you along? Because I imagine you couldn't have thought of those. For instance, 
I've talked a couple of times about the design assets where you can upload and sell your own design assets. And if someone who doesn't even know how to make cards or a game, you can download their art or their card templates. Is that something that you thought in the beginning or is this something totally you're like, oh, well, there's a need. I'm going to go ahead and fulfill this need with the design assets. It wasn't something that I thought of. It was a community suggestion that we should have art for people that can't make art. So I went out and paid a bunch of artists to give us art to have kind of an initial stock of art in the asset shop. And then uh, from there, designers have just continued to add stuff to it and definitely isn't something I would have thought to add. The community ideas system is really we generate so many ideas out of there. And we basically that's how we get the ideas and, and build to extend the game crafter. Let me get some dirt if I can. Is there an idea that is repeatedly suggested that is at this point almost annoying where you realize, hey, we can't do that or that's not going to happen? Is there an idea out there you think, oh, man, ugh, ugh, sorry, but ugh. <laughs> there are lots of those. <laughs> it, mostly it's annoying because there are quite a few that we just can't do. We either don't have the physical space because, like I said, we're pretty space limited or the technology does not exist to do this in a one off fashion. Right. Or we can't afford the machine that it would take, you know, like we need to buy this robot or we need to build this robot or, wh right. or whatever the case is. But that's a million dollars, you know. So you get so many ideas. This is great because I think it's important to encourage the community that if they have great ideas, they should totally share them for no better reason that they can use these ideas if the game crafter actually utilizes them. But you can categorize them as never going to happen, could potentially happen if we're huge in the future maybe, and let's do it. Right, yeah. A lot of them are let's do it, and so we just do them if we can. There are some that are that take a lot of research. The idea gets put out there, we start looking into it, but it takes a year or two years or whatever to actually put all the things in place to get it done. Then there's stuff that is like foil cards. This is something people have wanted, Magic the Gathering style right. foil cards. People have wanted that since day one, basically. And we have looked into it and the technology didn't exist. The technology didn't exist. And there's just no, no way to do this. And But more recently, we've been investigating things that are actually, there's a potential we could offer this. I mean, we still have a lot of testing to do and to make sure that it's actually going to be high quality and that sort of stuff. There's a glimmer of hope for the first time in nine years. So that you can get foil stamp cards. Oh my. Yeah. And I'm not saying we're going to do it. I'm just saying there's a glimmer of hope for the first time. Right. The other one that gets added to the idea system, probably weekly, if not monthly, which is you should open a game crafter in my country. Oh, international. Uh -huh. Yeah. I live in Germany. You should have one here. I live in Canada. You should have one here. That sort of thing. The problem is that it takes millions of dollars and lots of time to replicate the Game Crafter. And I'm not ridiculously rich. I do not have millions of dollars to open new Game Crafters in every country or even every region of the world. So unless we get some kind of investor that wants to help us with that, that's just not going to happen. Like Shark Tank this thing, baby. Exactly. Well, what have I missed? So... I've been promoting the Game Crafter because we have that sponsorship deal mm -hmm. and I love it. So thank you so much, by the way. I really appreciate reaching out and I know I've totally taken advantage, especially of the urgent system mm -hmm. where I get to click urgent and I get the game in a matter of days. It's insane. So first of all, 
Thank you so much for that. Thank you for doing the sponsorship. Honestly, I wasn't sure if you'd take us. I know you were asking for sponsors, but. Sean and I had the conversation on an episode. What do we actually do? Because we wouldn't want to, for lack of a better term, muddy our podcasting waters with sponsorship unless we actually wanted what they could provide us. And we use the Game Crafter all the time. I've been using I've been using the Game Crafter before I even met Sean. So that's something that just totally made sense. I also, since I'm thanking you, I wanted to thank you for really impacting the game industry in ways I'm not sure how much you realize. The Game Crafter is a huge deal for all of those individuals that would be game designers. It just removes so many barriers to entry so that pretty much anyone that has a strong idea for the next great game can go ahead and do it. And it's caught on like wildfire so much that now publishers, when we do these publisher speed datings at Gen Con and other conventions, or if you come up to a publisher and you have a great game idea, it's up the quality of expectations now. So now it wasn't just this, holy crap, is this game already published? How many have you already sold? And getting to say, actually, I just use the gamecrafter.com. But nowadays people are saying, why didn't you use the gamecrafter.com if you just show them handwritten note cards? <laughs> Amazing impact that the Game Crafter has had. That's always awesome to hear. <laughs> Hopefully we've been doing all right. Is there anything we've been missing that we haven't talked about yet that you'd like to mention on this episode before we bring it to a close? You do a great job. Honestly, you're, you're always bringing up new things on the podcast, so you're doing great. One thing that I haven't heard a lot of detail about is Component Studio, and I thought, oh. let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Component Studio. Okay. Sponsors, yay! Thank you for sponsoring us. Send us free stuff for money, and we'll talk about your stuff, but only if we like it. Ha ha ha! Let me give you a quick intro what Component Studio is. It's basically, if you had Photoshop or GIMP or something like that, one of your photo editing programs, and then you combine that, magnetically merge these two things together with a spreadsheet, you can create a spreadsheet of your game components and design just one of them. And then Component Studio will design the other 99. So if you're building a deck of cards, for example, most of the cards are basically the same layout, but they need new data points in them. So you need like uh, the words go here and some images go there and all that kind of stuff. You design one card and it will design the rest of them. You design one tile, one chit, one whatever, and it will design the rest of them. And you're not just talking text either. You're talking about, well, I need 100 cards made with this icon, and here's all the text I can load in, but what if I need everything's the same, but I have a different icon? Is that possible on Component Studio as well? Oh yeah, you can put in uh, new imagery, new icons, new colors, uh, and it's it doesn't all have to be the same because you can have some conditional logic too. You can say things like, if this card is red, then don't include this section, but do include this section. This is gonna save so much time for anybody that takes the time to utilize the component studio. We have a game, Tooth or Bear, that's coming up that we need to release prototypes, and that's exactly what we're gonna do. We've been working on it, and we're gonna upload the spreadsheet <laughs> It's weird because our designer, Jennifer Oboli, I actually went back and said, hey, could you do me a favor as you're making these cards? Could you totally put them in the spreadsheet? Could you divide them into these categories, these columns, if you will, because of the component studio? So I definitely know of the component studio. I've been looking for an opportunity to actually speak from experience of using it. I can't wait. It's so cool. 
saving me so much time because I'm one of those people that in the past, even if it was just a 50 card game, every single one of those 50 cards, I have to start a new file and I'm just copying and pasting or deleting layers and increasing layers, saving so much time with a component studio. Right. And, and the big thing, the big thing is you do that, you go through all that work that you just said, you know, copying and pasting, making those 50 things, and then you realize, oh, crap, the icon should be in the lower right corner because if you put it where it is yes! now, your thumb is in the way or whatever. <laughs> yes. And so then you have to go back and redo all of it. Well, with Component Studio, you can literally make one change and then click a button and you have all 50 new cards done. You are speaking my nightmare. The amount of hours I've spent. In fact, there's so many games that I've shelved. Oh my goodness, I'm embarrassed to admit this because I wanted to make the change and I've just been too lazy to go back and change all the ding dang cards to match. Oh, oh my goodness. Me too, been there so many times. That's why I created Component Studio, man. It was, it was a private project for years and then somebody was like, why don't you make this so everybody can use it? And I'm like, oh, that's genius. <laughs> man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. If people are interested, obviously they should go to thegamecrafter.com, but is there anything else you'd like to promote before we head out of here? If you're running a convention, go to tabletop.events and we can help you run your convention. Oh, nice. And what about you personally? Sure. The Game Crafter can be found at The Game Crafter on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, everything. And uh, me personally, if you want to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Plain Black Guy. Plain Black Guy? What does that come from? I actually owned a software consultancy, and I still do, for the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years, uh, named Plain Black. And uh, used to do all kinds of uh, software development projects for people. I'm starting to wind it down because I want to spend more time on the Game Crafter. But yeah, that's where it comes from. If people want to get a hold of the Game Crafter Manifesto, is that still available? It is. Just uh, type in a Game Crafter's Manifesto into Google and you'll find it. Sweet. Well, I'm Alan Girding. This is the Tuesday Night Podcast. Please send us any questions, comments, concerns. In fact, we would love to hear your knave tonight submission. JT is a noble because he's a guest. Before this, you were a knave. But now, if you want to be a knight, you go ahead and you send us our stories. Podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. Just a quick audio file. We're on social media as well, at PlayTKG. Twitter, Facebook, all of that jazz, Instagram. And I think with that being said, JT, I appreciate you coming on the show, but I think this episode is... Finished. Thank you so much for listening to the Tuesday Night Podcast. Thank you so much, JT Smith, for the sponsorship of TheGameCrafter.com and becoming a noble. For all of you knaves, knights, and listeners alike, we'd love it if you could go ahead and give us a review on iTunes. Also, it's the Board Game Geek nominations time. So if you want to nominate this podcast as your favorite board gaming podcast, go check it out at BoardGameGeek.com's nominations. You can also vote for our games there. Like, that's not lemonade for the best party slash family game. That'd be cool too. Hey, have some fun, everybody. 
See you next time. Woohoo! <laughs> I don't know why I make noises, but I do.